Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Adventures in Machine Learning podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts today, Penn Wilson, and I'm joined today with Michael Burke. Hey, everyone. And today we have a very special guest, Joe, head of Ternary Data, data engineering consulting architecture firm based out of the world. (laughs) He's out of Utah. (laughs) And Joe's got a very interesting backstory and history, and he's also a prolific podcaster, blog writer, and a contributor to a lot of discussions on open source, like MLOps community boards. It's where we first get, you know, came into contact. And we just did a recent uh, speeches at a, a meetup together. And we were back to back with one another in a presentation. And, and we both were like, hey, man, I really liked your, your presentation. Kind of hit it off. And then we organized this ticket show on the show. So yeah, we're going to have a, a fun time this for the next 45 minutes or so talking about all sorts of stuff. All sorts of stuff. Yeah, it's good to see you again. Yeah, like I said, back to back. We're at the Apply Conference uh, for Tecton. Yeah, you gave a you gave a talk, and I immediately followed. And it's like ah, I'm not gonna be able to uh, do what Ben did. He has a way better talk. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Definitely really crazier talk. slides. Mm-hmm. Yeah, crazy slides. But it, it was an awesome talk. So, hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com/podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to top end devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv. And I renamed it to top end devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever. I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. For the audience out there, if you haven't seen Ben's talk at ApplyConf, go check it out. So, And check out my awesome. too. It's not as good. <laughs> no, yours was really good. And Thanks. very sort of every way that you presented the discussion that you were having about feature stores and the criticality of them and also roped in processes around ML that can promote to production-grade deployments. It was was just very prescient. And I think a lot of that thought leadership that's going out there these days, we're all talking about it. We're doing conference talks about it. The big players are doing it right now. And companies are hiring your company to come in and show them how to do it right. And it's just interesting to, to hear about all of that stuff now. And 10 years from now, that'll be just the norm. But right now it is cutting edge because it's yeah. still being defined. Mm-hmm. Still being defined. Yeah, we can we can get into all that stuff. Yeah, there's there's a lot to there's a lot to dig into in the ML ops space, especially. There's it feels like it reminds me of where data science was sort of in the early like kind of late two thousands, early two thousand tens, where it just feels like it's almost like data science is new again in some ways. Um mm-hmm. so yeah. What makes you say that? Well, it's like an inflection point. So I would say like for the longest time, data science it, I call it data science one even though I have different epochs of data science that probably predate that like version point two or something or whatever that was kind of like because data i mean if you look at what data science is really it's 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 applying rigorous statistical and mathematical techniques to describing and understanding data right like and it, the word science i mean it's interesting when you look at the evolution of the, of the term data science though as sort of a, a an aside i mean what was it 2009 dj patil came up with the definition but he intentionally left it very vague um <laughs> There actually wasn't a, a definition for it. And in a subsequent interview I read, he said, yeah, that's by design. We didn't want people to be hamstrung by a, a certain definition. And I think it was Drew Conway's kind of Venn diagram of like hacking skills, statistics, and like domain knowledge or something, something like that, or nunchuck skills or, or whatever. Like, so that was an early attempt at it. But but what was missing from a lot of that was, you know, if you, if you looked at that Venn diagram, it said uh, like hacking, or, you know, basically like some like, not quite a software engineer, not quite anything. You're sort of like the crossfitter of data. Like you're basically like kind of mediocre at like everything. <laughs> so, but what's happened since then, you know, and this is happening to sort of as a macro trend in data is the adoption of software engineering practices 
into data at large. And this really started happening probably, it started becoming, I, th I think, very clear and popular a few years ago. I mean, a lot of bigger companies had always been doing this, like your Googles or Amazons, because it was like, they essentially were creating what you now call data applications or data products that their business is data and using data. But that didn't really translate well into the rest of the world. You know, early attempts at like big data tools, maybe, you know, Hadoop's, Sparks, I think started leading the way to open people's minds. The fact you could do maybe more, you know, distributed computing on data, but then the practices behind software engineering, I think, are what's really changing right now. So the ability to do operationalized data, governance, observability is a really big space right now, which is basically just an adoption of DevOps practices, observing and monitoring your assets. So that's what I really see as a big change. Data science, it's definitely maturing as a field, whereas I, th I feel like, you know, the past several years have just been basically people running sklearn or, or various libraries on their, in their notebooks and hacking away on their laptops and maybe deploying things in production once in a while. But I think the real difference now is doing stuff to, uh, you know, deploying to productions now going to be much more of a norm as opposed to an exception as it is right now still. So in a long-winded way, that's why. And really that other component that you, you touched on there with getting production grade ML into production, that observability is is absolutely critical. It, it's just, it's the equivalent of our logging system monitoring for traditional software development instead of making sure that we're processing JSON requests properly and that we're not having malformed records in the data science space. It's, is the data correct? Is the data different than when we trained? Has this model ever seen this data before? Is there some fundamental change in the nature of incoming data? How robust mm -hmm. is our ETL process? Like, are we dropping records? Like, all of that stuff is that DevOps piece that that's what I think is exciting. And what you were alluding to before with this is ML 2.0 is where we're starting right now. Mm -hmm. It's like, this is how you take this seriously. Yeah, for sure. It's exciting to see too. You know, I mean, I, I talk, it seems like a week goes by, I'm not talking to somebody in the observability space, especially that it seems to be at the hottest area. As far as I can tell, and I'd love your opinions on this, you know, both Ben and Michael and what you're seeing out there. But it seems like observability is definitely the, you know, the hot thing when you're talking about data observability over here or ML observability over there, which in my opinion, when you kind of dig underneath the hood of these uh, practices, they're almost, I mean, they're almost solving the same problem. They just kind of mm -hmm. branded slightly differently, but they can, they can solve a lot of the same problems, but but at the end of the day, yeah, you're right. It's operationalizing. It's getting visibility in, into you know your data plane, whereas before that was very much taken for granted. Like, yeah, I'll train a model and data, and it'll be great, and we'll probably never deploy it. But I got some a cool CSV file that you can look at. So that's that's just things have things have changed because now the discussion really is now that we have built a lot of the infrastructure a lot of the foundation to help data scientists and analysts you know do their jobs properly now you can actually start productionizing for real so it's cool yeah it seems like part of that focus is shifting away from the cool factor of generating that csv and generating that that model artifact it's like yeah yeah we solved this problem and now people are like well how do we make money off of that mm -hmm. and that's really what if you look back 20 years people were really interested in like hey we need a website or maybe 30 years ago <laughs> like we need a website everybody has a website our company needs to build one you look at some of the corporate websites 30 years ago it's like yeah cool <laughs> uh great address formatting that, that's super awesome your logo looks legit but nowadays it's it's so commonplace that you have this highly refined marketing focused profitability and engagement focused website for pretty much any company out there whether you're you're selling electric vehicles aircraft parts or potato chips like you go to anybody's website and it is it's pretty much standardized and unless you're Berkshire Hathaway <laughs> then you just kind of have what I, I think it's a word doc still I, I <laughs> You think uh, I'm joking? Um, I'm, anyway. I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's like the ultimate flex. It's like we don't even need a website. We're so cool. So. Hey, everybody knows who we are. Yeah, but no, but no the, that's, that's a good point. Yeah, in the ML space, we're moving on from that point of can you solve this problem? Cool, but hey, you need to do something with this, and the yep. business is going to expect results out of this. For sure. I mean, tell me, you know, I mean, over the years, too, what, I, I'd like to get you guys' opinion on this, but, you know, what what, what I've seen and one of the reasons I started my company was because we kept noticing over and over 
data science teams would be hired by these companies. Data scientists ain't cheap. They've never been cheap. And, but then you get a group of them together and that starts costing real money. And But either the, the, it would kind of go two ways. Either the uh, data scientists would be able to do their job because they had data, they had the infrastructure in place, they had the support of the execs and so forth. Or they would sort of just flounder because they didn't have the data, they didn't have the systems. They, execs would be sitting there like, cool, we're paying these guys a bunch of money and gals and like, well, I don't know what you're getting out of this stuff. So we'll just, I don't know why we have data science at all. And for a lot of, at least you kind of step away from the Bay Area, especially the latter case was a lot of what I was seeing where I think there was a, a big, a lot of FOMO around doing data. And so people were hiring teams probably prematurely, to be frank, but spending gobs of money on it. And then, of course, to your point, it's like, well, so what are we getting out of this at the end of the day, right? I mean, crap, we, we got you guys whatever you want, GPUs, fancy laptops, kombucha, like, what are we getting? <laughs> I want to hear Michael's take on this, actually. Mm, For a practicing ML engineer right now of like, hey, mm. what? how do you feel about this? My personal opinion is that data science, and the way you guys framed it actually makes a lot of sense. Data science is sort of in a early stage or like a 2.0 stage where it's still super dependent on infrastructure. So mm. software and software engineers have sort of figured it out and their consumers are PMs and non-technical people. Data science are almost a step above data engineers in terms of the hierarchy of needs. And so without a really solid foundation, it's kind of pointless to have them. And I've definitely been in situations where data scientists do flounder, unfortunately. And it's mainly due to a lack of infrastructure below them. Because our job is to pitch that we are useful in providing value. So if you're good at your job, you can usually convince execs. But if you don't have that fundamental baseline data, you spend all your time doing ETL and waiting for queries to load. So it's really hard to make an impact. But that that's my fairly uninformed opinion. I, I think it's pretty spot on, to be frank. Yeah, I mean, and same. again, I think we're all speaking in anecdotes. And I haven't, you know, I don't know, there's a comprehensive study that says, yes, most teams suck because of this reason or this reason. But but it sort of bears itself out in the you do hear, I would say, pretty common statistics like 85% of data science projects fail, which was actually kind of funny because that was actually a projection that Gartner made. It wasn't like a, a point in time stat. It's like by the year like 2023, we predict 85% of things will fail or something like that. But people took that. It was like, well, that must apply now as well. So we'll just we'll use it at that. But the point is, then you, then you see the other piece where it's like data scientists spend 80, 90% of their time cleaning data, gathering data, all the stuff that like isn't part of the job rec. Or maybe it is. I don't know. But it's not like making models and stuff, which is what most data scientists want to do. So it's just like it's like I hired you to do one job and I'm just like, okay, well, you can just go like sweep the floor and pick up the trash out there. I mean, that's that's kind of what it, it felt like. I you know, I, I wrote an article on this several years ago. It was kind of like the bait and switch of data science, where I think it was I think a lot of data scientists run the impression like they'd be doing a certain job, right? Like very highly technical and whatnot. And they get into it into the role and they're like, why am I why am I doing everything except what I thought I'd be hired to do? This is a common complaint I heard from data scientists and still do, but it is what it is. Yeah, I mean, I've gotten responses very similar to what you're saying from mm. teams that I've worked with that they either feel completely overwhelmed because that infrastructure is not in place and they're asking for help. Like, hey, the data engineering team is working on business critical stuff right now. We're they said that they're going to get to us in Q4, so we need to hire you and your team to help us build all of this. And that can work, you know, hire a consultant company and they're going to teach you the best ways to do it. And they're going to probably do most of it for you, which is great. So you can be freed up to do the algorithm stuff. But I've also seen relatively young teams, and this isn't an age thing. This is just young to that that role company will go out there and they have a fixed budget. If you have a maximum budget of $140,000 per per person you're bringing on as a data scientist, you're not getting somebody with 10 years experience anywhere. So it, you can't get experienced candidates to come in. So you hire people that are relatively recent out of school and they're under the impression like, oh, I'm going to be using deep learning for everything. And mm -hmm. like that's the future. And that's what I learned in my master's program. And it's like, yeah, there are use cases that that is the right tool and it's perfect for that. If it if the boot fits, put it on the on the, the foot for your project. But then they get sort of demoralized and angry almost sometimes and confrontational. And I'm like, hey, we can we can solve this with a like we can actually solve this problem with almost a hundred percent accuracy 
because we have the correlated data to what you're trying to determine. This is just decision logic. And they're like, well, this isn't data science. I'm like, yeah, it is. It, we're using data to solve a problem, pump the brakes. You don't have to use algorithms for everything. And I've seen the, like the two ranges of that of like, hey, I, I just can't even do my job because I don't have the data or the data is mm-hmm. so messed up and wrong that you spend months just fixing it before you can even start with an algorithm. For sure. I feel like, you know, it's interesting because I, I feel like the infrastructure piece is being solved to a large degree now. Like that, it, it's, and we can talk more about this in a bit, but so it, the infrastructure and the technology is, uh, I think that that's well underway to, to being at least better. I don't know if solve is the right word because I don't, don't feel like anything's ever truly solved in, in this, you know, in this, in the data business. But so what's interesting, I was talking with uh, Ben Stansel about this a couple months ago, who's a data thought leader and whatnot. You got to get him on your show sometime. He's, he's hilarious. But we were talking about just kind of look back 10, 20 years in, in data. And despite all the technologies, even observability and stuff, it still isn't really addressing the central problems that we've seen, which is like, do I trust the data, right? Is data still messed up? Like, and trust being the big one. Like, I don't trust these results. I don't trust the results of this report or this model or whatever. And it seems to be a constant thing. And so that I think that's sort of the next challenge once we get past you know, the technical layer of establishing trust. And part of that is definitely better data practices, which will make the data better, hopefully. But then again, it's also like just traditional things, basic stuff like communication and getting buy-in from the business, which is completely non-technical. And I would say much more challenging thing to solve. Like no matter how much technology or money we try, I mean, how much money has been thrown into the data space for tools right now from VCs? How many (laughs) billions or hundreds of billions of dollars, right? So, and, but, but execs are still asking the same questions. Like, why is this report wrong? Or I don't, I don't believe this data. So I don't know if we need to start spending like trillions of dollars to solve that or like what, you know, we just up the ante and like kind of joking about that, but you kind of see the point. It, 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 so it's, it's, it seems to be a disconnect where I think people are focused on like, yeah, we can solve it with tools. I'm like, yeah, but like basic organizations are also like inherently, like organizations are kind of basically inherently screwed up in a lot of ways. And so mm-hmm. that also causes data problems to occur. So yeah, imagine in, even in your industry, I can't speak for your company, Michael, uh, and I certainly won't, but I have interacted with some of your competitors. And even in that industry, it, with a service that you would expect looking from the outside, you're like, well, you're providing a streaming service. You're measuring how people are interacting with that platform. You're, cal- you're calculating how many minutes or how many minutes and seconds did somebody watch of this particular program and what defines this program? Like, what genre is it? Who are the the actors in it? Who are, who directed it? What are the the metadata about this that we can gather? And I ask, like, okay, you want to build a recommendation engine? That's cool. Like, where's the the metadata store for the labels with this data? And you just get these sort of defeated looks from the whole team. And they're like, which metadata do you want? I'm like, well, like the genre of the shows. And they're like, yeah, which version do you want? There's four different teams that have created mm. different mappings of that. We don't know which one to use. So we'll use them all and do like a voting of those different ones. So that single source of truth, the technology, you're 100% right, Joe. Like the, the infrastructure already exists for all that. Like there's feature stores out there. Like that conference we talked at together, mm-hmm. Feasts is a feature store for this. Databricks has one as well. And that gives you that single source of truth. But if you don't have the process in place and the rigor within, like the engineering discipline and rigor within your organization, tools don't matter. Mm-mm, not at all. Yeah, agreed. And no, I, we actually are pretty good in terms of having metadata, but I definitely know what you mean. Like <laughs> you can have 12 genres for one piece of content. Like, is it really comedy and sad and action and horror and thriller all at once? I mean, Maybe <laughs> someone got robbed and it was funny. So, but yeah, it it's it's definitely it's also tough because the data sources aren't reliable and you're not controlling the inputs. Mm-hmm. So you're often scraping from locations or using some sort of algorithm to get uh, metadata. So it's tough. But I had sort of a, a little game that we could play if you guys are are down. Let's do it. Sure. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So, Joe, can you? Before we get into it, can you give a like 30 to 60 second background on yourself? 
Yeah. I'll make sure I have my timer right here. 30 seconds. So yeah, Joe Reese, co-founder, CEO of uh, Ternary Data, where I did an engineering consulting firm. I My background is has pretty much always been in data to some capacity, whether it's been an individual contributor role, leading teams, leading companies now, more on the applied end too. So I definitely am one of the weird, I guess, data practitioners that's you know run lines of businesses before and been responsible for like P&Ls and stuff. So I think that's a bit unique in this industry, at least. So uh, I also teach part-time at the University of Utah in the School of Business. I teach uh, analytics, blogger, podcaster, and currently writing a book on data engineering for O'Reilly. So Amazing. Thanks. And you have this shtick for the fact that you're a covering data scientist. Can you elaborate? Well, at one point, you know, I just made some really bad decisions in my life. And, you know, uh, <laughs> got, uh, got hooked on data science and you know, it just uh, it was it's tough, but I managed. No, I'm just kidding. So <laughs> I need to work on that shit a bit better. No, I mean, what 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 I was really born from was, uh, you know, I got into. I've always been in data, and I, I got into ML in the early uh, 2010s. I actually joined a, um, a very early automated machine learning startup. You know, in 2012 ish, our whole thing was like, give us data, we'll give you predictions. And I was like, that's cool. I like this problem. It's a cool problem. Then come to realize like everything around that problem, the algorithms was actually the easiest part, to be frank. Like at the time we were doing ensemble learning with like support vector machines and tree-based models. It was before the deep learning was actually like a thing. So I mean, even then I was like, this is the algorithms piece is cool and automating, finding a, a perfect fit for a model is cool. But data inherently, when you're talking about structured data, especially tabular data, that data is messed up. So, so structured data is really messed up. Hosting models at the time, like you'd have to figure that out, right? So it's like write REST endpoints. And so I, I had to figure out a way, okay, so I get it. We had a team of uh, big PhDs working on basically like feature engineering and all this stuff. And, and I'm just like, this is stupid. Let's automate this. So I built a, I built a way to automate, to basically do automated feature uh, detection and engineering back then. And, but fast, and then over the years as leading data teams and, it worked at another AutoML startup for a very short time. And then I saw the same problems happening several years later. And it's like, this is, I don't know if this is ever going to be solved, to be frank. And so I just kind of got jaded. And along the way, I, it, it, exactly what we talked about, where you're just hiring data teams to come in, data science teams, and they just end up kind of, I don't know, spending a lot of time at the ping pong table, not getting much done. Uh, they didn't have the support they needed. You know, it's, I don't, it's not, not a knock against them. They just, they, they walked into a situation where they're probably not, it probably wasn't the right time. So... Seeing that over and over, I also, you know, got into data engineering, I would say, I guess, more formally around 2015, 2016, and just sort of fell in love with it. So yeah, uh, I saw, you know, Monica Rigotti's uh, AI hierarchy of needs pyramid. I was like, yeah, that resonates a ton. Let's start building a foundation. So it's kind of been that way ever since. So that's really recovering data scientist trick. I think I, I, somebody gave me that title back in like 2015, but we all call, I think we were calling each other reform data scientists at the time, because we were all very much in the same boat. It was like uh, Ben Taylor, if you know who he is. He's uh, mm -hmm. now the uh, chief AI, AI evangelist at um, Data Robot. Data Robot. Uh, me and his, yeah, me and his buddy um, Dave. I think we all told each other some variant of recovering data scientist. So, yeah, awesome. So that's that's the history of it. <laughs> yeah, anyway, cool. Long-winded answer, but the interesting thing about almost all of the people that you just mentioned, everybody started completely different places too. Like started some people in completely different like professions and then moved into tech and started figuring out problems with data. I've just always found that fascinating. You know, it's similar to my own too. my own What's past story. Man? What's your background? <laughs> Nuclear engineer, moved to and served in the Navy for 10 and a half years and then uh, worked as a process engineer at a DVD and Blu-ray disc manufacturer, then went to make LEDs at Cree in North Carolina. Then worked at Samsung, and that's where I got into data because I'm I'm lazy and I like to have things automated for me. That's a highly manual process when you're doing like writing recipes for tools and optimizing them. So that's how I got into data. That's cool. How about you, Mike? Yeah, I studied environmental science and data science. Graduated a couple years ago, and since then I've mostly worked at Two B, but I also worked at an algorithmic hedge fund for a bit. And mm, yeah, I'm really enjoying just doing deep dives into data and data tools. So that's cool. What, what I find interesting about the data space too is, you know, back in the 2000s, I always kind of make this reference, but it was 
Uh, who, who, if you guys watch Office Space, that uh, the old movie from the like late nineties, um, mm-hmm. yeah. So you remember that that character um, Milton? I think it was the, the red stapler guy who like lived in the basement. Like so, that was basically what data people were sort of perceived as. I would say back in the day, like it wasn't this hot, sexy job it is now. It's like, yo, um, can you pack your stuff and go work in the uh, cellar of the? Uh... <laughs> so like I think the number the. the my nickname back then was the numbers guy or something. So people would, I, w- I was stationed right outside the CEO's office. I had this weird job where like he, um, I don't know, for some reason he liked me. I don't know why, but he's like, you're the only person I'm going to trust with numbers. So you're going to sit outside my office and anything I, I need, you're going to go get it. And we're going to, so, I mean, it was an interesting situation where, you know, you're involved in like helping make these really big decisions at a fast growing company. And, and so I think that was very interesting, but Apart from him, everyone else is just like, yeah, what's up, nerd? Um, So just kind of a different thing. Whereas nowadays, you know, everyone rolls up the red carpet and pays you a ton of money to to be the data person at the company. So just it's changed a ton. It wasn't always this way. It was not this way. Your job, like I I studied math and like the the jobs you can get out of school with math was like, you can go uh, be an actuary, which is, you know, that was my path originally. You can go work as an analyst, you know, because or data miner or whatever it was back then. Data science was not a term, um, even though we were doing like predictive stuff and optimizations like what now. Or I guess you could go work for the NSA. That was the other <laughs> job path. But it's like you didn't have a lot of options back then. Or you, could, you can go be a math professor, actually, and make make no money. And so... Or just stay in school forever. And stay in school forever. Yeah. White paper after white paper after white paper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But even then, it's interesting, too. Like my, my uh, co-founder, my business partner, he was a math professor for a number of years, like had his, got his PhD and, and everything. And then what's interesting now in the data space is that the salaries are so high that people in academia are just like, why am I dealing with this stuff? I, I can go make more money and not have to deal with all the politics and the, you know, kind of the BS of academia. Like, let's do that. So, yeah. Yeah. I've seen the same thing with people from a particularly statistics background that mm-hmm. go in to get a PhD in that sort of advanced math. And yeah, I've heard the same thing. They're like, I can't believe a company is going to pay me this amount of money to <laughs> just do statistics. And they're like, it's not even that advanced either. They just want it to work and want that insight. Like, but I'm not complaining. It's like, yeah, you're a rock star now. Enjoy it while it lasts. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, Go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. Yeah, it's like the old scene in the uh, old Borat shows where he would like get an office and it's like a, a light bulb dangling from like a wire <laughs> or something. And he's like, wow. <laughs> so... Yeah, it's come a long way. And it, and it's crazy, too, because like, the other day, actually, what was it? There's a local college here, Westminster in Salt Lake, and there's a uh, Panda Express right down the street from it. And they had a sign that was hiring for assistant managers starting at like 70,000. And this uh, associate math professor at this university took a picture of it. It was like, this is crazy. Like, they're hiring for more than I'm getting paid as an associate tenure track professor at this university. And it was like, wow, that sucks. But and Express is pretty good food, so I don't know. Um, yeah. I want to double check your, you know, priorities and go up there. <laughs> so. Yeah, one of the things that right. it seems is the main draw for academics, though, is com- not complete freedom, but a lot of freedom to explore what you want and do research. A lot. So that's lot. been the selling point that I've heard, not the money. No, and it's true. You can you can do a lot of stuff. But what's interesting too is what I see with academics, you know, coming into industry is they just kind of a lot of them operate at a different cadence than people who are from industry where it's like, I think because of the fact that you can, you can be open-ended with your, your, your time horizon, which is, I think, great for research for business. On the other hand, unless it's the expectation, it's like, yeah, we kind of need this done like yesterday, like, but time doesn't exist. Actually, there's countable infinities in time and stuff. And you're just like, shut up. Just give me, 
my answer. <laughs> so. There's actually an interesting anecdote that I have about that exact topic. Mm, uh, interesting. A lot of universities in their particular computer science PhD programs and postdoc work, they isolate candidates and make it very difficult for them to co-work with one another and contribute to things as a team. So it's almost this competition that exists at that level of like, who's going to get published on this topic first and mm. who's going to get more citations and who's going to get research money and stuff. And then there's two universities who are basically said, nah, we're not doing that. Now the Rise Lab at Berkeley, um, mm. which used to be Amp Lab, which used to be whatever the heck it was before. And Stanford is, is adopting that, that model as well, where everybody's just put into this open office environment and you're forced to work with everybody and collaborate with everybody else. And it preps people coming directly from those programs. Like we hire a lot of people in engineering at Databricks directly from those programs. Even when they're doing their internships, they don't, there's no ramp up for them. They're just like, this is the culture that I'm used to. Yeah. If I get stuck, I just ask somebody. And Mm. it's amazing how fast people contribute significant feature work because of that environment. But you get somebody that comes out of a college that doesn't do that. It's a culture shock for them. They're like, wait a minute, I I can ask somebody else to review my code? And like, how does, like, how is this a thing? And it's like, we're a team. We're not individuals. Yeah. So it's... That's really cool. That's, that's, that's refreshing to see. Hopefully that catches on. I mean, because that's yeah. a big thing. Like, because the thing is, there's a lot of talent sort of bottled up in, in academia right now. And I mean, I teach at a university. So I mean, I've never to admit that, you know, maybe I sort of have a bias here more towards industry, though, because that's where I come from. But it's, it's, it, there's a lot of latent talent at these universities that would be, maybe there's a way that you could cross over to or they could, you know, help, help the uh, academia while they can help private industry as well. I think it's, because it's a weird dichotomy. And I, I think it's kind of a necessary one, like the, the cadence that some academ- academics move, or academic departments. And like, this is, a, I don't know what it, I don't know what the purpose of it is. Like, you know, at the end, they are publishing papers for like the five people who are going to read them. Like, who cares? <laughs> like, more people are going to listen to this podcast, right? So and that, that's the equivalent of a, a research paper. But the whole point is like, um, just the world's changing. So faster and faster every day. And there's so many companies out there that you look at the the volume of research that's actually published that has a lot of citations. A lot of oh, it's geez. coming from FANG companies. And a lot of the patents that are coming out that are backed by papers, a, a lot of that research is coming because a, a company says, we're investing in R&D. We're going to hire people that have this this desire that would otherwise be stuck in academia doing the same work, just we can get their voice heard. And then other people can learn from that and adapt that and grow from that. Then it's accelerating this in, this industry, exactly what you said. 100% yeah, it's be, and I think I've realized, with, I'm sure you can attest to this when you're, when you're writing and, and doing knowledge work, basically, but like knowledge work isn't, it's, it's not a fixed, it's not a zero sum game, right? Like just because like you write a paper or, you know, read a book that doesn't preclude you from writing other papers or other people reading your papers or you reading other books, right? Like how many books do you have in your bookshelf right now? Probably more than one. I would think you're uh, probably most, around 4,000. Exactly. Right. So that's a lot of books, by the way. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> so, but no, I mean, it's, it, and it's sort of this weird notion where I think people see knowledge and content as being one of these things. Well, yeah, if, if you're doing it, then I can't do it. And I'm like, even if we wrote the equivalent book, it would be a different book. Mm-hmm. I mean, I talk to people in the data engineering space all the time, content producers, and I don't mind talking to them, having them on my shows and, and whatnot, just because I'm like, even if we did compete, which I don't think that we do, maybe the outside perceptions we do, like, really, no matter how hard we try, like our content we make is is just, it's inherently different from each other's. And I think that's great. Like everyone gets, you know, people get different perspectives. And as you point out, there's a lot of papers, I think that's what's needed in the industry. If it was all homogenized, then well, that would also mean like a lot of problems are probably been solved at this point. So, but yeah, I, I don't think they have been. So, I'm glad that they haven't, because otherwise, I wouldn't have a job. <laughs> you would just do other things. <laughs> I was actually oh, writing about this today. In uh, I'm kind of writing the final chapter of my book right now, and it, I was writing about. So, so I see some articles like, "Oh, data engineering is going to die," or "Data science is going to die." People said that a long time ago because tools are getting simpler and. People said data scientists are going the you know the way of the the um, dinosaur because of uh, auto eval and all this stuff and just like it even if it does it take, say that that's true all it means is like people are just going to focus on more high, uh, value add work yep is that a bad thing I mean exactly that's all, all of the tooling that we're focusing on in, in the engineering team right now 
and some of the great prototype stuff that I've seen that hasn't been publicly released yet that some of our principal engineers are working on. I saw a demo just last night or the night before from Jean Ri, who's our principal ML engineer. And it's all about, it, it's not about automating somebody's job in the data science space. It's about eliminating annoying work mm-hmm. from data science work. Nobody wants to configure XGBoost hyperparameter tuning for the 87th time. Right. It's annoying and obnoxious, and it's just a bunch of typing, and it wastes time. Why not have a template that you can just say, here's all the creative stuff that I'm doing with my data, mm-hmm. and here's what I expect my data to be in, in conditional ranges in order to solve this problem. Right. And here's how I want to analyze that, so generate all of those reports for me. But the modeling aspect and the tuning of it, like, we can automate all of that. And there's nothing sexy about that anyway. You're calling this ultra high level API and people are like, oh, I'm using, you know, you mentioned before, like SVM. Most people that are using that API have never looked at the source code of it. Right. That code is cool. Like the actual algorithm implementation, you look at how, how does it actually converse with the Fortran code underneath it and look at the Fortran code and be like, wow, that's clever. Wow. There's a, there's a date at the top of this that says 1978. That's awesome that this is that old and it's not changed since then. But when we're talking about implementations from an application standpoint, we're hitting this high-level API. It's a one-liner. It's not like you're implementing a, a novel algorithm. And if you are and you need to, cool, awesome, but don't do that first. <laughs> yeah, I would almost argue that the, the concept that data science is going to die because of auto ML and tooling doesn't make sense. If you take programming languages and their evolution as an analogy. So back in the day, you used Fortran. Now we use Python. For, mm-hmm. Because Python makes all of these tools so much more accessible, you need to be, you don't need as much technical skill to be operating in this world. So A, less technical people can enter. B, those initial tools will still need maintenance and improvements. So it's not going to decrease the, the workload in that space. And the fact that stuff is automated doesn't, I don't think it's a strong argument that data science is going to die. I think if anything, it'll open the door to more people. And those automation tools will still need lots of really hands-on technical developers. So I don't follow, but there might be other arguments. Yeah. No, I I mean, it's basically, no, I think you nailed it too. Absolutely. But it's the same arguments that have existed since the dawn of time when you're talking about, you know, advancements in technology, right? Like the Luddites felt the same way with, the industrial age and stuff, and it's no different. I, I, I think there's just there's kind of de- data luddites to some extent, and but that that's that'll persist. Um, but you know, I mean, in the data engineering realm, people said that, you know, it's like, oh, because now you have five tran and Databricks or Snowflake or whatever. Like, well, what's a data engineer going to do? And I'm like, there's a ton of other things you could be doing. Connecting pipelines like the last thing they should be doing. Just like, you know, writing a SVM from hand is like the last thing you should be doing. Like, that's stupid. Why would you do that? I mean, do you make your own car tires? Like, do you, do you, you, know, do you uh. You know, uh, or you make wood. your own, yeah, wood. Do you make your own mugs? Actually, some people make their own mugs. It's actually not too hard. But the point is, it's yeah. There's, I think there's, there's a lot of underestimation of what data scientists can be doing in lieu of like the stuff that you think they should be doing today, like making models and all this other stuff. Like I, I was writing this morning. I, my prediction is just data in general. It's going to get a lot more quote enterprisey. And what I mean by that is now that we've solved a lot of the low level implementation details, you can focus on higher order stuff. Like you see quality, model quality, for example, in the data science realm, I think is going to be a really big one. Explainability, that's somewhat automated, but, you know, interpreting results, like, you know, and I think interfacing more with stakeholders too and getting them value, like that's kind of where it's all going. Like, you know, I don't think any business has it in the right mind to say, oh yeah, I want to hire like people so they can just write low level APIs all day. Like that's, that adds a lot of value to my life. No, as a business, as owning a business too, I'm like, I wouldn't hire somebody to do that. I'd find it all to be, you know, for, for example, like I'm, you know, today, I, you know, last night and today I'm looking at new automated, uh, new sales automation tools. I, I could, I could easily design this stuff myself and write it, you know, cause I can write software. Is that a good idea? No, it's a waste of time. Mm-hmm. It's utter waste of time on my part. I you know, I know people that have built CRMs. And I'm like, why would you do that? There's so many good ones on the market. This is no different. You know, at the end of the day, it's just you're trying to get an outcome. And back to the other point too, what you're saying, you know, with creativity, it's like, well, I was just reading the other day, like you have about 90 minutes of like real creative time in any given day. That's not a lot when you, when you get down to it. And so, you know, if you can have 
90 minutes of a unconstrained, you know, true creative time where you, your brain can really flourish on, you know, chewing through good ideas. Like that's worth more money to, I think, any business than like eight hours sitting there grinding away at stuff that should be automated. So, yeah. And you, you brought up that point that I think senior level data scientists or people that, that grok it from the start, maybe they're just more empathetic or they, they really like talking to people, but the most successful data scientists I've seen are the ones that don't focus too much on that tech. They try to figure out like, hey, has somebody built this already? If so, mm-hmm. just use it. I'm not going to, I don't have some some ego trip that I need to go down to prove to the world that like I'm elite coder. And it's like most, most good data scientists don't care. And that they're just like, hey, what I'm going to focus my my extra time on because I'm using, and I've, I've interviewed uh, customers of ours who have used our auto ML solution, which is like a glass box auto ML. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not like some of the other vendors out there, but even very senior data scientists, principal level, they love it because they can, it auto generates a bunch of code that they don't want to write. They already know how to write it. They don't want to spend their time doing that. They'd rather spend their time talking to people in the business and interviewing them and saying like, Hey, what are your top three projects this next mm. in the next five years? And what are you thinking about how this business can go? We're talking to executives and saying, what are the business priorities that we can we can provide insight into making the correct decisions so that our company can grow and everybody cool. can get more bonuses and stuff? You know, it's all the stuff that the company really cares about and the data science team should care about. And I 100% agree with what you guys said about that that concept of like focusing on things outside of the automation is far more important in your day-to-day work, Michael, working as a data scientist right now. I'm sure you spend a lot more time thinking through the data problems and analyzing data and, and talking to people and saying, how can we make this better? And that's far more important than writing code. Yeah, another analogy is you are a manager of your workload and you can delegate to either people or tools. And as tools get better, you your ability to create work per unit hour increases dramatically. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I'm I'm excited for tools. I don't want to be writing pipelines. <laughs> no, no, and I think you guys bring up a good point too. Like one thing we do at Turnary with our consultants is, you know, we we definitely have a, like a really good um, training program for data engineering. But that's technical, right? That's one half of the sort of the yin yang. The other part is communication. And so we spend a lot of time teaching communication skills. This is unusual, I come to find out, like very odd. But I'm like, uh-huh. you're talking to you're talking to customers. And your job is to really help empathize, understand their problems, you know, and help them solve these problems and sell, right? That's also part of the job. If there's an opportunity to, to, to help a customer out more, you should be able to identify this and understand how to sell. So it's a, what, what I find though, is these are, if I look back on my career, I'm sure you guys can look back on yours and maybe see some similarities. But it's like communication is just, I think, a really underrated thing with data science. Like no model or report sort of exists in a vacuum. Like at some point, you're going to have to talk to people about either results or findings or suggestions or any number of things. And the other the other dirty secret in, in getting ahead in your career is like 5% of your of your success is going to be attributed to technical skills. Mm-hmm. So the other the other 95% is like, how do you get along with others? How well how can you, you know, relate to people? When it's I first uncovered this, what is it the book, The Peter Principle, I think it came out in 1969, but it talked about basically organizational dynamics. And the, and the whole crux of the Peter Principle is every person, all of us here, there's a certain level of like incompetence above which you're never going to rise further. Um, so that ceiling might be today. It might be when you're promoted. You might have already gone past it and you don't even know it. But there's a certain point in your uh, knowledge and skills and how you relate to other people where you're just you're actually going to be counterproductive to yourself. But both thesis as well as how you get ahead in a lot of ways. It's nothing to do with the skills that got you the job. It's how, how well you can play the organizational game. If that sounds crass, I mean, it is what it is. But anyone who's worked in a job long enough knows this is true. So Yeah, I mean, I've always referred to it as the beer factor. Even though I don't really drink beer, but it's the the measure of does someone see you as somebody they want to have a beer with? Mm. And if the answer to that is yes, and enough people feel that way, that's a measure of your success as any technical person is if you are able to communicate to other people on a professional and a personal level and people just generally want to interact with you, you're going to see far more success 
And that goes not just for an individual person in a tactical role, but also a team. So if the team has that that reputation at a company, and the data science team is is fostering that, and that's a priority. Or in your case, and well, in both of our cases, Joe, yeah. with consultancy, if if your people that are going out there to talk to a client, if they can't become that trusted advisor status and be somebody who's inherently likable, yeah, you're going to hit that plateau yeah. or violate it very quickly because then it, all, all that anybody's looking at you is how much does this person know technically what can they actually do right and you put a fine enough magnifying glass on that and people that are looking for faults in that are going to find them in pretty much anybody regardless of how how good they actually are for sure what i've learned in consulting I'd like your take on this is like we found you make more money and you add more value when you don't touch a keyboard. The moment you touch a keyboard in this industry is the moment you become mortal. You become mortal because people now are like, well, now you're just an engineer. Now you're just like a higher paid version of like me. And now they're going to nitpick all the faults in that one. I found if, if we could just go up the food chain, offer advice, like that tends to be work people pay more money for. Um, not to say we don't touch keyboards, we touch them all the time. But I found like if you if you can communicate your value really well, that, that goes a long ways. And if you don't have to touch a keyboard and get the same result done, even better. So, yeah, the most successful effort. engagements that I've been in, a part of, even though I've done tons where I've implemented an entire soup to nuts thing for somebody, mm-hmm. I, I still try to do this during those. But the the engagements that are purely uh, interacting with the team that wants to do like pair programming and wants just mentoring, like, hey, could you just check to see how we're doing this and provide advice? Those are the ones that extend into like, hey, can we get this guy for nine more months and we'll pay whatever in order to have this and then back channel communication. Somebody's like, hey, man, do you want a job? And no, I'm good. But uh, (laughs) like those build such a a, it's almost a community with a consultant and with a, Mm -hmm. a customer and data scientists within an organization. They are consultants in a way you're consulting with the rest of the business. And I think teams have something to learn and that's i have that discussion with any ml team that i talk to and and for a long enough period of time i usually take like a couple of hours during our engagement and be like listen you guys want to be super successful within your organization get to know these people and just offer to help them and include them in your decision making process and lean on them to give you assistance and make them emotionally invested in your project it's amazing how much of a difference that makes Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. That's so awesome. Also with team dynamics, it's really important. Like if you can contribute to your team's culture beyond just having like your project succeed, it's really valuable to contribute and overall improve the trajectory of your entire org or even just your team alone. Um, being a good teammate, I think is really, really valuable. And it just takes one person to ruin that dynamic. Mm-hmm. So it also oh, takes yeah. a good manager too to understand like who that person is been rude about like I, i'm quite ruthless about that kind of stuff personally just because we've all seen what happens if you get if you get that one person in that because it sets a tone for the culture right so like you're only as strong as your weakest link if your weakest link is also a kind of an a-hole then ain't great because that's going to bring the whole team down what happens is it's what harvard business review had a really interesting article or so maybe on their blog in 2013 it was called the bozo event horizon so familiar with the idea of an event horizon it's a black hole where like light itself can't escape and like <laughs> at a certain point in the company's culture you start hiring like c and d players in there or just toxic people same thing starts happening like any goodness of your culture just like if that you know just disappears and is pretty much like irretrievable and that's and we've probably all seen this like good companies it takes one person to kind of screw it up and it's not obvious when this happens that's the other thing sometimes it is but it's usually not what we start noticing is that the output of people starts changing, the way they carry themselves starts changing, the cadence of conversations starts changing, and then pretty soon that starts manifesting itself in other people. And before you know it, it's just a much different place. Like you know, you probably worked at companies where like, yeah, I remember back in the day, this was like a really cool place, and like people kind of reflect on it fondly, like a like a high school date or something. So, but it happens all the time. So yeah, I mean, I've worked for those companies, mm-hmm. and yeah, it sucks when you see. It's a different dynamic when it's top down, when somebody at a really high authority comes in who's just a taskmaster or something. They don't care about personal dynamics. They don't care about team morale. They just want OKR results. Mm-hmm. Like they, They're just focused on that and they whip everybody into submission. You see the 
the morale just die at the company pretty quickly. But that insidious, somebody senior enough gets brought into a team and then you just start seeing like, man, why are all the builds failing in this engineering team? I thought we hired this this rock star and shouldn't they be fixing all of this stuff? And you, you start looking at stuff like PR reviews in in that team and you're like, wow, if I look at PRs that were done a year before this person came in, everybody's super helpful to one another. They're just, mm. they're trying to, they're trying to teach one another and share their collective knowledge. And you have this great dynamic going on. That person comes in and you can just, you can hear the snark and mm. the judgmental reviews that are put in there. And it's like, you just shut off your entire team. Now nobody wants to help anybody else because now that's a culture of fear. And a smart company and a smart director, VP, or executive should be looking out for those people, A, making sure they're never hired, because that is the cultural interview uh, before bringing somebody on. And But B, like you said, once that person is kind of sniff them out, and you sniff that out by attending meetings and seeing how the team responds. But once you sniff that person out, you got to get them out of there. Uh, oh, yeah. You can ruin an entire company by just okay. messing that up. Well, you know, I'll give you an example. I, I run a company, right? I, I mean, and, and I, I, I found myself, I accidentally did this to an employee the other day during a meeting. I, not intentionally, but I, I singled out a person for something. And immediately after that, I was like, that wasn't good. And so I, had, <laughs> I, I, I pulled the person aside. I was like, that, I didn't intend to do this. Just had it heart to heart. Because I was like, because I, I know what happens when that, you know, mm-hmm. um, when you start going down that path. And I was like, I know I, I need to do better on this. I didn't mean to do that, right? And I, I caught myself though, right? And so hopefully it doesn't spread or manifest itself. But even then, it's like, you know, you can be fully aware of this kind of stuff and you can still do it, even if you're like the CEO of the company. So in this case, I, I was just like, at least, you know, I caught it and I was honest with myself and I didn't try and make excuses for my behavior. I'm just like, that's not, that doesn't reflect the culture that I want at the company I'm trying to run. You know, just in, in the heat of the moment during a discussion, I just, I found myself, I just, we were just going through task lists and I was like, why isn't this done? But I, I said it in such a way that probably set the person off and like that, that wasn't good. Right. So, but I know what happens if that continues and doesn't go unchecked is like, I've, I've accidentally like created a monster of my own, you know, of my own making that sucks. So, but correct. Like that's a that? big thing to do. And I, that's a rarity in executives. Uh, I've only yeah. known to uh, your story just now and my current executive staff at Databricks. Interesting. They're the that's, only that groups of people. A lot of them. Yeah. I mean, I bought this person a gift card and like, I'm sorry, I'm a dick. You know, <laughs> I don't mean to be this way. I'm like, do not. But it was, it's just a reminder. Like nobody's perfect. Yep. No matter how hard you, you, you say like, oh yeah, like I would never do a thing like that. Well, guess what? You just did. So, so I would that. also argue that perfection is almost harmful and the fact that you were able to be self-aware and lead by example and say that hey we all make mistakes this is a growing process i think that's super super valuable like i don't know yes. if you'd intentionally insult people and then <laughs> say oh my no. mistake but <laughs> i, I like that's seeing that as a manager is is crazy or from a manager is crazy yeah no so, and I mean, we've seen toxic managers too that just berate people i mean I, i've seen people like I, I remember there was a cfo at one of the companies i worked at like he would yell at his, you know, he would yell at his team like, I, you know, your parents wasted their money on college. You guys are useless, you know. And he'd say, he would talk to him like this every day. Yikes. He lasted like three months. So, but he, he was, he, yeah, he was a piece of work. And that was like a good, that was him being nice to them, from what I heard. So, it's just crazy. But yeah, I mean, it's interesting because you know, it, this is like the Adventures of Machine Learning podcast, right? But it was it, what what I find interesting is in a lot of data conversations they have, especially with more senior people, the conversation inevitably comes back to like kind of more if we're talking about machine learning and practice or data science and practice, it, it usually comes back to organizational dynamics at some point, just because it's kind of like you can reach a certain, you know, asymptote, I would say with technical capabilities and um, effectiveness. And after that, it's kind of like, there's a certain gravity that, that that organizational dynamics have on your ability to, to function in data science to a large degree. So yeah. And within those team dynamics, you both mentioned or touched on that. And I think it's just so incredibly critical for a with how fast this industry moves and how fast our profession moves in algorithmic stuff and ML ops and whatever names we want to apply to everything that our profession does, there's no way that any one person on any team on this planet can know it all. Mm-hmm. Everybody's going to come with their own history and knowledge, and some of that knowledge is going to be required by everybody else on the team. 
and everybody else on the team has their own you know specific knowledge and skills and what they're really good at and what they're really passionate about a, a properly functioning team that can solve any problem put before them within reason is the one that has that that openness and humility of all members where and there's no fear of reprisal there's no you know brilliant jerk that's in there who's just completely diluted with a crippling Dunning-Kruger syndrome. And, you know, that's why I see a brilliant jerks. I don't believe in the brilliant aspect of that. Anybody who's actually brilliant is extremely humble and knows what they don't know. And it's very open about that. Or like you, what you just said with your story is humble enough to say, I messed up. I'm human. This will not happen again. And let's talk more. That requires not only an extremely high IQ, but also an extremely high EQ. And if you cultivate that within that team, it's amazing what people can do together. You can build stuff that no one person would ever be able to build. You can solve problems that no one person would ever be able to solve. Mm-hmm. That's how important culture is to me, at least. It's super important. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. It's super important, super underrated, but it, I think it's everything at the end of the day. So One more point on that. It's not just about creating an environment where people work together. Having happy employees act increases dopamine in the brain and dopamine is linked to all sorts of crazy pattern recognition, signal processing, and actually having fun environments improves individual performance regardless of collaboration. So when we're trying to get the top performance out of these people, like data scientists, where the difference between 98 and 99% efficiency is actually measurable, it really makes a big difference. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think people, you know, it's the old Warren Buffett says tap dance to work or something like that. I mean, that, that, I think that that's, there's something to be said for that. You should, you know, find, find work that you like to do too. Right. And then it doesn't feel like work, you know, and if you're happy doing it, you know, everyone, you know, it's, it's the reality is everyone's going to have kind of an off day once in a while. But I think as long as you're generally happy with what you're doing, that's cool. Right. So, and, and, and technology too, you know, for people listening to this, it's like you got a lot of options. It's not like you have to be stuck at some mixed job your entire life. Like, you can change and go somewhere else. Like what, I mean, people are like, what was that company? Better.com or the CEO, I think laid people <laughs> off on Zoom in a very horrific, very self-unaware way. Like you can find other work at other places. I know it sucks, but like life's short. So but on that cheery note. <laughs> so. I mean, it, it's, it's incredibly true what you just said, particularly with people that have a background and the right attitude in this space. There is such a shortage in companies globally for these skill sets it's one of the most inherently employable job titles mm-hmm. and if you're if the culture sucks and you can't fix it at your company and there's no signs that from e-staff that these problems are going to be fixed and you've voiced your concerns and stuff just pop smoke like there's so many better environments out there that you can find Mm-hmm. That's true, and I mean, I know we got to close out a bit, but like the um, it's just, it's so competitive these days to find talent. And what I think is going to happen is, I think to your point, Michael, like workplaces are going to really center on happiness because they have to. You know, like high performers aren't going to aren't going to suffer fools gladly on in any measure right now. Like nobody on this call needs to, right? Like if I wanted to tomorrow, I could go find work somewhere. Not that I want to, because I run a company and I like doing it. Ben could go find work tomorrow wherever he wants. So could you, Mike? And it's, that's cool, right? So you have options. And so does, you know, if you're listening to this, you probably have options too. It's, you're in a hot field, like probably the hottest field in the world. So I think it's only going to get better for, for employees just because, again, it's insanely competitive and it's just such a, a, a talent gap right now that I don't know how that gets filled anytime soon. Certainly not over the next five years. So yeah, we're all in this enviable position in industry of effectively the inmates are running the asylum. Companies have to kowtow to, that rare resource yeah absolutely all right so this was super fun very insightful i think we went to places that neither michael nor myself thought we would go to maybe michael oh, same <laughs> uh, but uh yeah this was great thanks so much for coming on joe yeah, anytime An absolute pleasure yeah and uh yeah any closing thoughts michael anything you want to you want to mention the game was really good but we'll we'll save it for another episode joe i guess you have to come back <laughs> Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, 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 I like the conversations. Happy to be back anytime. 
So, all right. So, yeah, of course. So, till next time, this has been one of your co hosts, Ben Wilson and Michael Burke. And we'll see you next time. So, take it easy, everyone. Bye, everyone. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C A C H E F L Y dot com to learn more.